0: Today on Foodstuffs.
1: Jess wonders if sake is poised to be the new beverage of choice for North American drinkers.
0: Then we learn about one of the long standing unsung heroes of the Toronto food system. All right, you have a cool glass with a screaming face lady on it.
2: And then I just like... All of those things are there the quality, the narrative, the story, the, there's so much depth to it. Um, and that's what those people are looking for. Yeah. Um, okay.
3: This is Deborah Lawson, Executive Director, Second Harvest, and you're listening to Foodstuffs.
0: Perfect.
3: Welcome to Foodstuffs.
0: A podcast about food and culture.
1: And their intersections.
0: I'm Jessica Walker.
1: And I'm Brian Gilman. Okay, Jess, so we just ate a, a lot of different foods.
0: <laughs> are you feeling okay? I feel all right. I feel okay.
1: a little bit tired, but... That's all
0: right. We're going to make it through. It was for a good excuse. We needed to.
1: Yeah, the the good of the podcast (laughs) hinged on this. So should we explain why we had all this food? Yeah. And what we had with it? I mean,
0: we're going to share our experiment later. But essentially, especially after you listen to this first interview, you'll understand um, our our need for this methodology. Uh, but we needed to try sake and we needed to have food to try with our sake. So stay tuned. You'll hear more of our outcomes from our very, very scientific test coming up. Um, but we should probably do the first part first, right?
1: Yeah, first first is first. <laughs> first is first.
0: Um, yeah, this first interview uh, is a conversation with... I had with a man by the name of Stuart Sakai. Most notably for this interview, he works for the Ontario Springwater Sake Company out of Toronto, but he also works at the Black Hoof in Toronto here on Dundas Street. Um, From the get-go, when I met Stu last summer, he was talking to me about sake. Truth be told, I really have very little previous prior knowledge of experience with sake um so it was really really notable to me that this person who is around my age um a young human who also works in service is so into this drink in this case that I just have zero experience with it's super humbling to remember that you can kind of go back and not know something um that is pretty ubiquitous in certain areas. So coming from restaurants, I know how much storytelling has to do with selling something to a customer um, or making people curious about it at least. So his earnest, like sincere curiosity about this thing that I'd heard of but had no personal experience with made me want to know more. So over the time since we first had that conversation last summer, I've noticed it on lists throughout the city and that begged the question, Will sake become more desired and therefore more readily available in the years to come?
1: Okay, and do we know?
0: (laughs) Well, I'll let you be the judge. Let's see if storytelling makes you curious and makes you want to know more.
1: Cool. All right. This is Jess talking with Stu Sakai.
2: You go to a sushi restaurant, you look at the menu, it says sake, and it says hot or cold, and you're like, oh, cool, let's try sake, because that's what you would drink with sushi, because that's what's Japanese and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) The thing that people don't realize, though, is in that context, you're 99.9% of the time drinking the worst possible sake you can get. Right. And ver- people's opinion of this sake always, is always varied as well. Sometimes they're like, oh, it's good. I liked it. Sometimes they're like, oh, it wasn't very good. It wasn't my thing. Regardless, um, the thing they don't understand and the thing that I always try to tell people is just that it, it sets the bar. you know. And then in any beverage, uh, there's the good, the bad the ugly everything in between mm-hmm. right so if you know that that is as bad as it can get then it can obviously get a lot better yes and then that's where we come in at the
1: brewery
0: for right? sure yeah. so how does it compare to others experiences with drinks because I don't know, the typical experience. It's not like there's a huge list of sakes to choose from. Yeah. There is normally one or two, and yeah. and so there's not a choice to be even made. It's just like, boom, sake. Yeah, yeah. Do you want it or do you not? Um, but that's not our normal North American experience mm-hmm. of drinking, and so you can kind of understand why someone would associate that experience mm-hmm. with what sake is sure. just in the presentation. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah. How does it compare to... It, it has I, to do
2: with conditioning. It has to do with the fact that, like, from a very, very young age, culturally ingrained, uh, there are these beverages that are available mm-hmm. and accessible. And this is what your parents drank. Mm-hmm. You know? My parents drank whiskey. My, mo- my mother drank vodka. My father drank whiskey. And that's pretty much all they drank. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't drink vodka or whatever, but I do drink a lot of whiskey. (laughs) So I know about those things. And and it was in the home. Um, When you go to restaurants and you started working in the restaurant business, then all of a sudden you're around, I'm around wine and spirits and cocktails and, uh, and beer and cider and all these things. And it's just like, well, why isn't sake included in that?
0: Sake is also, has a shorthand of being called rice wine. And I think that that's part of the problem too, right? <clears throat> like that's not a correct association with what we understand, quote unquote, like wine to be.
2: People it- don't know anything about sake. So we're forced to use these terms to help explain it and define it. Now, if you want to break it down, sake um, is a fermented rice beverage. Mm-hmm. That's what it scientifically is. That's what it chemically is.
0: Um. So just back to where it fits then in our lexicon Mm. as north americans i guess in your role you'll be dealing with restaurant owners sometimes and i from what i understand you've branched well beyond japanese restaurants well Mm. beyond sushi restaurants Mm. at this point in time if you're cold calling someone Mm. what are you encountering as far as like the first line of defense that you have to kind of like overcome, yeah. um, to explain why it does have a place outside of Japanese restaurants.
2: The thing I think that is most, um, difficult for non-Japanese restaurant owners and thinking about how to fit sake into their, uh, format and into their, their lexicon, as you call it, is, uh, the, how to serve it, you know, like, how, how do, does it have to be done this way? Like, I don't know how to treat it. I don't know. Does it go into, can I put in a wine glass? Can I, do I have to get these little cups for it? Mm-hmm. Do I have to serve it hot? <laughs> like, how,
3: how, how do what's you What's the gear yeah, yeah. to make and it happen? Like,
2: what's good? I don't even know what's good. Like, I've, I've had a good sake at a Japanese restaurant once. So I know it can be good. But like, I don't know anything more about it. No one knows anything about it.
0: What the defining features were about it yeah. to look for going forward kind of Yeah, thing. And mm-hmm. there's
2: a lot of reasons for that. Like, that has to do with... You know, the fact that availability, we have very, very low availability of sake in our market. Um, the fact that there's no education around it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just starting to, we're starting to get that. Um, there is um, very few accounts or restaurants so that you can actually go to and like learn something about it. You go to a Japanese restaurant and they have a small list of sake. Ask the server, oh, can you recommend a sake? Can you tell me what these taste like? Can you where are they from? Can mm-hmm. you tell me like, you know, what's the yeast is using this? Or like how's this gonna pair well with this? They will not have a clue. Yeah. And that's another fault. They're just like kids that are in Toronto or in wherever they're living to learn English and have fun and they're young and they're just, you know, enjoying themselves. They don't know anything about sake. Like and... young people in Japan don't know a lot about sake. Right. Uh, consumption in Japan is just like plummeted since the 70s it's been slowly slowly just going down and down and down as hmm. people drink more wine they drink more beer they drink more spirits right they're less interested in drinking sake although that's starting to turn around a little bit right now which is really really good there's always a uh, silver lining which is uh, a lot of younger brewers are coming into the mix which is making it a lot yeah. more interesting
0: a resurgence yeah. and if you know, 99.9% of your customers come in and don't ask those questions. There isn't the need for it, yeah. clearly. But are you feeling a change there? Is For is...
2: sure. For sure. Um, well, uh, like I work at the Black Hoof, I've been there for six years. We've been serving sake for four.
0: Oh, By wow. the glass. Wow.
2: By the glass, which is the most important thing. You go into a Japanese restaurant and you get these small 300ml bottles and they cost $40, 40 $50 dollars for a 300ml bottle. You don't even know what it is. Yeah. They don't know what it is. They can't explain <laughs> it to you either. So why the heck would you spend you know, 50 bucks for a 300ml like, bottle of Succa? Taking cake. a chance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge gamble. So you end up going with the cheaper option, which ends up tasting like crap. So then you just don't do it. Um, there's a huge uh just circular kind of
0: a vicious cycle or something. That's
2: just yeah, that's just not giving it a chance. Right. Um and it I think moving forward it will be more not necessarily Japanese or or non Japanese, but just accounts that are more contemporary. They're thinking of this as more long game, that are thinking about education and thinking about how important it is that the customer knows what it is that they're drinking.
0: For sure. Um, so it sounds like there's a few factors as to why it isn't that way in Japan right now but can you just talk about this was part of the interesting element for me is that in (laughs) Japan it doesn't compare even if there is more of a general knowledge it doesn't compare to the way in which you think about a bottle of wine to go with your meal and thinking about how it pairs and all that because that's not the way it's approached typically Mm. in Japan is that right?
2: Well, Japan, like, I've been there a couple times, and as I said, I just got back from there. Um, In Japan, sake is very, very integrated into their society, just like wine is with us. Mm -hmm. It's not nearly thought of in this, uh, treated in the same way, I don't think. Like, for example, if you go into a restaurant, there's not necessarily... Uh, a huge sake list in mm-hmm. most restaurants. Most restaurants you go into and then there's like one or two or three that are the, the restaurant owner's favorites. Right. You know, and they don't necessarily think about food pairing. Food pairing is something that is a very new phenomenon in Japan, I think, because for the longest time they just drank sake with food. Mm-hmm. And they didn't need to think about it too much because the cuisine was designed for the food uh, or the sorry, the cuisine was designed for the sake and the sake was designed for the cuisine. They, they grew up together. Right just like wine in a lot of regions but because Japan's so small and it's always been so insular that like you know this this they develop together and uh, naturally there's a harmony between them the thing is it's so cool about sake that a lot of people don't realize because we are constantly uh, in our society we are always thinking about food pairings as you know and whether or not you Know a lot about her, you know a little, you know like people know at least like oh I should have a red wine with my steak and I should have white <laughs> wine with my fish, mm-hmm. uh, which is such an oversimplification and is so wrong in so many ways. I
0: love challenging that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: but sake is this, it, it's mm-hmm. so different chemically than than wine is. Mm-hmm. There's so much less in it, mm-hmm. and as a result, it's just so much more amiable with most any food. You can literally pair sake with like any number of Western cuisine, any number of Western dishes, and it'd be fine. It might like you know, you can definitely get really thoughtful with it and, and create and try to find harmony between a dish and, and, and a sake, but uh for the most part, um when I'm uh whether I'm eating pizza or, like, burgers mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah, you told me that. Like, you know, it's like, socket can be really, really good for those things. As long as it's not just too delicate and too light and, and too expensive. You know, just get a cheaper style socket, It's, like, super big and juicy, and it's just perfect. Yeah, like it can cut through. Exactly, like, yeah.
0: you told me that. And I kind of, I mean, everyone's reaction is like, what? Mm. Um, but it really does make sense because there is a saltiness involved there's like a little bit of acidity in some of them very
2: low acidity in sake traditionally but uh then there are more contemporary styles that are ramping up the acidity which is great for us because yeah. we are used to
0: acidity. <laughs> it's an approachability like it's like a <clears throat> building a bridge yeah. or something um but yeah all this to say sake and pizza is delicious together i can attest mm. um yeah so this is an interesting time where people are appreciating the handmade, appreciating the effort and the thought that go into a number of things that they're eating, drinking, etc. And I think about with that, a curiosity grows and you get more curious. Like, it's beyond wine now. It's beyond beer now. Mm -hmm. I think that beer naturally segues into cider, which in the last few years we've seen a huge upsurge in, in interest and therefore... Um, what is being created and, and um, the variation that exists within for it. sure, yeah, yeah. Um, is sake poised to be the next? Are you seeing the tide shifting and, and it's, there's room for sake? I would
2: definitely say yes um, because the more people learn about it, and there are people that are learning about it, like one of the things I like to, like I do in my own time is I do uh, tastings with colleagues. So restaurant people, uh, servers, bartenders, sommeliers, and do tastings and try to get them some knowledge and Mm -hmm. get them some access to some good sake as well. Right. And so then they get on board and then they start to go out there into the world and start to appreciate it as something that's real. And I think that's kind of like where a lot of these things kind of end up starting is from like, you know, people that are working in the industry and uh getting tired of like the same old and wanting to find something new and as long as the craft is there and the quality is there then they go right for it and the knowledge you know spirits like you know first it was bourbon and bourbon was huge you know scotch before that and then like rum has been a big thing over the last little while sherry's like huge in our in our market right now and vermouths and stuff so ciders are definitely really taking off in ontario right now Mm -hmm. as well uh, why not sake? For sure, it's definitely gonna have its time. Yeah, because the, and it feels different. Of those need, things, right? And all of those things are there: the quality, the narrative, the story. The, there's so much depth to it, um, and that's what those people are looking for. Yeah, uh, is you know that those flavors that are all tied into the history and, the, and and the narrative and.
0: Yeah, so much of all of these things is storytelling. Mm-hmm. So, if you don't have to just guess at a list. Um, instead, yeah. you have someone kind of showing you the way, then of course that's gonna do a lot.
2: For sure. Okay, two things that people always wonder about that actually need to be covered over real quick. One, people always ask about, oh, oh, sake, do you age sake like, you know, like wine, blah, blah, blah? Do you treat it like a wine? No, you don't treat it like a wine. It's, most of the time, it's meant to be consumed young. Um, two, hot versus cold. People always ask about that very, very important kind of thing. Um, when people say you should drink it hot, uh, they're wrong. When people say that it's more traditional drink it hot, they're wrong. Uh, they're not right. They're not wrong. They're just, you know, it's just all these answers, all these questions about sake, there there's multiple answers for them. um, but then like the best thing to do is experiment and just try it yourself warm up a little bit drink a little bit cold try it room temperature mm-hmm. some say the best sakes are the ones that can be enjoyed at a wide variety of different temperatures and these days most of the time like i like my sake when it's just like just barely just barely chilled yeah yeah because it depends on what it is if it's cold you know like then uh, the aromas are going to come out a little bit more and if, uh, if it's warm then if it has those more savory flavors then those come out to play uh, it gets pretty complicated in there I guess but um, the point that's is the gist
0: there's no hard and fast rules and anyone who tells you it there is is missing a lot
2: yeah and don't uh yeah if you ever encounter a menu that says sake hot or cold get a beer <laughs> yeah. I
0: feel like that's some solid advice to end on yeah. thank you you're welcome Mm-hmm.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Cheers.
1: So that was Jess with Stu Sakai, who works at the Ontario Spring Water Sake Company.
0: Yeah, they're the producers of Azumi Sake, which is made here in Toronto in the distillery district. More on that later. Yes. <laughs> yes. Very
1: soon we will get onto that. Yeah. As you know, I'm of uh, Japanese descent. Yes. Yeah. But like Stu, sake never really played a a big role I- in my life. I don't have a great knowledge base it from it. Sound so.
0: like, it doesn't sound like that's the case for... Anyone A lot of people, age, really. Yeah. So it was Japan.
1: interesting yeah. to definitely to hear about that. So we asked that kind of question, or we put that question out there at the beginning of, could this be, you know, the next cider or the next bourbon? Mm-hmm. And what's stopping yeah. it from that? What do you think now, now that you've you've talked to Stu?
0: Well, I mean, the more and more exposure I have to it, the more I understand its place for me. Um, And I think that that's any drink, right? Like any person encountering any drink is going to decide yeah, I could crush this all night long. Or I could drink that with a meal. Like recently I had an off dry Riesling, which is a slightly sweet Riesling, which I swore I would always hate um, for the first time with a meal. And it changed my mind entirely. That was the first notable like boom, boom, boom pairing where it like this wine isn't anything without this food and this food isn't anything without this wine. They're both better for each other. Um, So I think that that can be the case with sake as well. Um, going forward, I think it's smart what they're doing, kind of bringing in different industry people and letting them taste the variety of sake that exists right now and letting them all bring snacks to go with it or whatever. Well,
1: and maybe that's it, is finding that role for it.
0: Exactly, and more than that, like the vocabulary. Yes, yeah, of course. Because what the whole issue becomes when it's something's in a sealed bottle and it's not available by the glass for me to like pour you a sip for you to try before you buy, then you need to trust me, trust the words that I'm using, have those words sound appealing and interesting and curious to you, um, and then you'll take that leap of faith. So in order for a North American audience where we don't have this traditional um, knowledge in our families or whatever, and then we also don't have access to it readily, it is going to take education and and hearing that that's happening i think that yeah we're going to start seeing it more places because should we just get into this because we well i was gonna say
1: our... we're, we're we're playing an educational role right here so <laughs> you're like the food you stuff stuff team, <laughs> team is here to help you understand what you can and what you cannot eat sake with
0: it's definitive list <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we're gonna play a little game that's called <laughs> what can you eat with sake <laughs> so here it is
0: Um, Yeah, so in front of us, we have the Izumi of the North Namacho, um, which is a junmai-style sake. So if I turn this label around right now, the ingredients are three things, water, rice, and koji. Um, So we have 300 milliliters and so much food. Just a ton of food yeah we're gonna be putting pictures up on our our Instagram and Facebook so if you're curious about what we're looking at
1: so Jess why don't you pour us a few uh, glasses right,
0: you have a cool glass with a screaming face lady on it and then I just have a little uh, crystal glass so we're not using proper sake wear and I trust that Stu would uh, support us in that
1: okay bottoms up let's do this okay Very nice. Well, it tastes really good smooth. all
0: by itself. Mm-hmm. It's smooth. It is and smooth. I think that, as Sue was saying, it's not typical for there to be too much acidity, but I think there is some here. Um, which okay, what's we first? Start? I think we should almost yeah, start, yeah, with let's start with these little the Japanese. Fish- fishy snacks. Okay. I have these beautiful little preserved Japanese um, fish. Mm. Yeah, I actually yep. really like that. Guys, there's enough... So with this in general, from what I've read, um, junmai sake tends to have a little bit more body okay. and that's why it goes so nicely with food. And I can see that here because we have fried happening. We have a little bit of mm-hmm. sweet happening and then that delicious like salty fishiness. Yeah, I like that.
1: Yeah, that's really good.
0: Okay, so we okay, started off that where we, we, we knew, we knew where that we was going to go. Work. Yeah, okay. So what's next?
1: Well here's another one we know is gonna work. The pizza, <laughs> right?
0: Right starting off super easy breezy. Okay. hmm
1: We gotta gotta fold and eat these ones. hmm And with the sake now.
0: Mm-hmm. You go first.
1: That's I to me that tastes works better than almost the Japanese food. That's, to me, worked really well. It works.
0: Yeah, I think that the saltiness kind of cancels each other out. Right. So you're figuring out everything else that's happening with the sake. Not that this one's overly briny or anything, but um, yeah. Yum. Okay. Okay, what next? I'll finish you later. (laughs) I'll be back with some chili. oil. Okay, so now for the weird one. I think we should just go for ice cream.
1: Okay,
3: yeah.
0: All right, let's get weird.
1: Okay, so Jess has got... Spoonful of vanilla ice cream. Mm.
0: I love you, Huggins.
1: Seems mm. like a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. And right after, here she goes with mm-hmm. the sake.
0: Mm.
1: No, immediately the I face.
0: Mean, try it. I'm actually not that mad at it, surprisingly. You're but it's like it's certainly patch. it's in, it's changed it entirely.
1: Wow, that ice cream is good.
0: <laughs> Holy shit. We things we know.
1: No, to me, <laughs> that that was unpleasant. We found something it doesn't work with.
0: Okay, we succeeded in not just agreeing that sake tastes delicious with everything. All but right, I, so. I got to
1: say, it tastes delicious with almost everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I'm not mad at don't it. save it just for, for, this, for the sushi and, and, yeah. and Japanese food.
0: And I mean, obviously, this is not a fail safe. We are drinking one particular type of Junmai sake, but um, keep that in mind as well. Junmai is great. Again, bigger body, it yeah. goes more with uh, food than, than other types.
1: Try a few different things, and uh, you might like it. And I have to say, I got into it a few years ago with my wife, and it's a fun thing to get drunk on.
0: Yes, yeah. I know. It's a very particular type of drunk.
1: Yeah, it's if, if, if you've never been drunk off sake alone, try it. It's fun. Give it a whirl. Yeah, yeah it's and sort of fun.
0: all the other things on the table in front of us right now are mm-hmm. probably going to give us gut rot, <laughs> but not the sake. If anything, maybe it'll counteract it. Exactly. All right, so successful, successful taste test.
1: So that was, what can you not eat <laughs> with sake? <laughs>
0: All right. So through the magic of time and space, we are back in the studio now feeling full and happy. Um, So let's get a little bit more serious, though.
1: Yeah. A couple years ago, I had a really great idea and I want to talk about it. Um, First of all, there's so much food that goes to waste every day. If you think about Food from restaurants, food from grocery stores, even food from people's kitchens. Really good food goes to waste every day. Not food bank food, but healthy, fresh food. So so the light bulb went off. <laughs> I was thinking, mm-hmm. hey, all I do got to do is get myself a van or a truck or something like that and pick up all this food and connect it to the people that are, are really needing a good, healthy meal.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Um, Are you sure that someone hasn't thought of it already?
1: Well, as it turns out, they have. (laughs) About 30 years ago, and uh, truth be told, what they've created is way bigger and way better than anything that I envisioned in my mind.
0: Okay, so who are these people, and how did you find out that someone had already beaten you to the punch?
1: Well, they're called Second Harvest Food Rescue, and I... Notice their trucks driving around the city and if you live in Toronto you've you may have seen one of their trucks around and when I saw that second harvest food rescue I thought well that's probably it that's probably my idea <laughs> out there in the works and I found out how long they've been around <laughs> and again how far reaching they are I thought okay well time for me to uh, learn a bit more about them so before I get too far into it maybe I should just actually let Deborah. Deborah Lawson is the uh, executive director at Second Harvest. Maybe I'll let her explain what it is.
0: All right. so this is Brian speaking with Deborah Lawson from Second Harvest.
3: Second Harvest is a food rescue organization. What that means is we rescue food that would otherwise uh, have gone to landfill or uh, not been eaten, and we redistribute it, we pick it up, we redistribute it to Uh, just over 220 social service agencies in the GTA.
1: And what kind of agencies would those be?
3: They are agencies that uh, perhaps are places for young boys and girls to go to after school uh, from low-income areas. There uh, might be women escaping domestic abuse. They might be shelters for homeless men. They might be uh, at-risk teenagers.
1: And... Did this idea come more from a, sort of serving those agencies, or did it come more about from like what we were talking about of, of diverting waste?
3: I think this idea came from common sense. Um, okay. When we began thirty years ago, it really was just a couple of women. Uh, Ina Andre and Joan Clayton, who looked around, and at that time, you know, there was, as there is now, unfortunately, uh, serious uh, malnutrition and and food issues in Africa, and uh, a lot of people were talking about that issue, and these two women looked around and said, actually, that, that issue's here as well in our own backyard. So uh, they had seven donors and and, um, were able to distribute food that they picked up from those donors to, at that time, seven agencies. So when you think about it, I think the food waste aspect really was a a, a great um, uh, byproduct, which is, of (laughs) course, um, a great word to use. It's a great byproduct of what we do.
1: Something I wanted to point out is that um, a lot of the food that is running through this system is actually perishable. So unlike uh, a food bank, um, we're dealing a lot with, with fresh food, which with uh, perishable food. And the benefit to that is there's a lot more nutrition in that. Can you talk about the importance of getting uh, healthy, nutritious food to these people who are, are food insecure?
3: I can't say enough about how important it is that all people have the right to nutrient-dense food. First we eat, right? And then we're able to, to do what we can. Everybody needs good food. Everybody needs it to, to use their brain, to go to school, to learn something new. It really helps people to be able to think of their next step, what they're going to do next in life, how they're going to get out of that particular situation, a lot of the people that we serve aren't there forever. They're there for temporary amounts of time. So it's, it's our hope that the food that we deliver, that we serve them every day, helps them with a step up in life. Mm-hmm. Now some of those, you know, it's, it's being food insecure is, is becoming um, a term that I think a lot more people are, are becoming aware of. But being food insecure can happen to anybody. If, you're, if you were to lose your job, if you were to go through a messy divorce, if there was a tragedy in your family, it doesn't take long to run out of money. And so becoming food insecure may only last for three months or five months or maybe just a month. Um, but it, it can happen to anyone, and that's what I think is really key for people to understand that what we do, what we provide, helps people who are temporary temporarily in a situation. Of course, there's always the agencies where, uh, particularly when it comes to the homeless men and women, where they really can't get out of that cycle. It's, it's very, very difficult to get out of a, of a homeless cycle if you've been in it for a decade, Uh, the chances are what you're looking for at the very least, aside from food, is someone to treat you with respect, someone to give you some dignity when you go into a room to have lunch. And so that's the other part of of what we do. We look at these uh, long-term members of society who are probably never going to get past that point in their life.
1: I want to talk about the the organization and what makes it successful because I think there are a lot of really well-intentioned people and well-intentioned organizations Um, and sometimes they can't seem to get fully off the ground and a lot of it has to do with being uh, sustainable um, as an organization Um, what would you tell them uh, is the some of the keys, some of the things that they really need to pay attention to if they want to run a successful nonprofit or charity organization?
3: I think, like any other organization, it, whether it be profit or not for profit, you have to have a business sense. You have to know what it costs to run your operations. You have to know uh, what your expenses are. You have to know where you can raise your money. You have to hire good people, people who are good at their jobs. You have, so, understanding talent management. You have to have people who are engaged and compassionate and believe in what they do. You have to be flexible. And if it's an organization such as Second Harvest, where we really are, are a logistics company, you have to get really good at understanding what it takes to run a logistics company. We have a fleet of trucks. They go out every day, they're on different routes, you have to understand that anything can happen, trucks can break down, Uh, things can get delayed, Uh, we can get an overabundance of food some days in the warehouse. And how you manage it all requires a business sense as well as a sense of compassion for what you do.
1: Now one thing though I I wanted to ask actually is, in 30 years, you've done lots of, of fantastic work, but you've sort of flown under the radar. But as I understand now, um, one of the aims of the organization going forward is to change that a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about uh, raising the profile and, and where, where that came from and what those conversations were?
3: Because we've always focused on what we do, we never really got into advocacy. We never got into or proclaimed to say, we're going to solve poverty or we're going to solve homelessness. We felt, again, that was taking our our eye off off the core business, the main business. But I think after 30 years, when you realize how much food there is out there and it's an astonishing number in the millions, available to people in Toronto, um, it's it, what we're doing. Demands that more and more people become aware of us, and of course, the reason for that is you need more and more food and financial donors so that they can support the organization moving forward. Somebody asked me the other day if I thought that uh, we were ever going to have people in the city that weren't hungry, and I don't believe in my lifetime that we're going to. I don't believe that the combination of of the of the rich versus the poor, or the temporary food insecure people, that it's going to happen. When I look at over 30 years, it's only increased. And over 30 years, the city has done some tremendous, tremendous things, put in great programs to ensure that this wouldn't happen, but it still does. So as long as there are people who create the demand for it, we will continue to do what we do.
1: And I think going with that, as, as as that demand is there and maybe even increasing, it's more important that people do know that you exist and that they should support you in, in one way or another. How have you, I don't know if you've gotten this far yet, but how are we going to see Second Harvest more out
3: there? This year, we're really coming out there and we're going to really show this city how critical our service is to the people who live here. We have uh, we have been flying under the radar. You're absolutely right. But we can't do that any longer. We can't afford to. We can't afford financially to. We need people to really understand what we do and to understand that we play a critical part in this city, in this GTA. Our social return on investment for this Uh, for where we live is that for every dollar that you invest in Second Harvest you're actually investing five and a half dollars into the community and I don't know any other charity there might be a few um, but I don't know any other charity certainly one of our size that creates that sort of value so we can't afford to stop in fact it's one of my greatest fears I say to people what if we stop tomorrow what would happen I think we would cause such a disruption to people who deserve our service who have the right to the food that I it is it is something that keeps me up at night I think you're going to see a lot more of me down at City Hall okay, yeah. I think you're going to hear a lot more of me uh, within this city because it's it's time that the city understood the contribution we make it's not just a matter of isn't it nice, it's this is a serious issue and let's address it.
1: And maybe you've sort of, unbeknownst to some of the people at City Hall, become an important part of the city's food infrastructure.
3: There is no reason why uh, Second Harvest shouldn't be at the food policy table. There is no reason we shouldn't be at the uh, public health table. Uh, we already provide a public health service, we're already there. Mm-hmm. It's just that people don't know it's us.
1: So come 2016, they will know I'm you.
3: making my placards as we speak. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, we're very, very good. And good luck in 2016.
3: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this.
0: So that was Brian in conversation with Deborah Lawson, the executive director of Second Harvest, with a few interjections from Corey McPhee. Um, so, Brian, this was actually really helpful for me because despite me playing dumb. Uh, leading into the interview, I am aware of Second Harvest, and yes. a lot of people around me are aware of Second Harvest, but I think that most of us w- had an association that they were working more directly with restaurants um, and sort of diverting waste at that point in the food system. Um, yeah, diverting it from landfills, but that's not so much the case, but I'm not no, completely wrong that they the, had an association that's there, true. right? When
1: they first started, they really, that's what they were. They were mostly about and that was my idea, mm-hmm. It was picking up food from <laughs> restaurants throwing that we were f- throwing food away mm-hmm. um, but one thing Deborah mentioned to me was that that relationship went on so long that kitchen managers started to realize based on how much food they were deliver that that they were donating to second mm-hmm. harvest, that wow, we really are producing way more food than we need to,
0: yeah, like ordering too much
1: ordering too much food,
0: yeah, this is. Is
1: ridiculous, and it's great that we're we're providing food to a charity. But really, we're we're wasting money here,
0: wasting money and wasting food potentially. If if it weren't
1: if it weren't for someone like Second Harvest, right? So, really, what that ended up doing was it ended up showing restaurants that they could order less food Mm -hmm. and and create less waste.
0: Yeah, be more efficient.
1: And yeah, and be more be more efficient. So, really, in a way. (laughs) They've kind of worked themselves out of that market by providing that service so efficiently. So now kitchens are able to see, okay, well, we're not going to produce that much food. So they have less to give to second harvest. Mm
0: -hmm. Which is actually a good thing. Which is
1: actually a good thing because, again, part of this goal is about diverting and avoiding waste. Yes. Right? And reducing waste in general. And that's what's happening. So a lot of the places where they get their food from now are... Actually, right from the Ontario Food Terminal mm-hmm. right here in, in Toronto. So closer to the source. And she even mentioned, hey, there are, are people like farmers that are seeing us that are saying,
0: mm-hmm. you know what?
1: We're just going to f- grow fruit directly for you. Yeah, Right. So that's such a, a beautiful sort of transition. And it really shows how they've become sort of an unknown to an extent. Uh part of the food infrastructure here in Toronto yeah, in the sure. city that again maybe people are aware of them but some people think they're maybe a food bank some people think that yeah they're taking food from restaurants and they're diverting food from restaurants but they really have uh, played a major major role that has evolved over the last 30 years and I'm really excited to see what they're going to do this coming year yeah it sounds um, like it's now that one they're sort them. of pushing themselves a little bit more into the spotlight, and I think part of it is to help grow their organization, and a part of it I think comes from the fact that hey, we are a knowledge base. Mm-hmm. We know. Yeah, like you uh, how to come, do this.
0: You're a resource. Come see us if you have questions about this, this, or this. And I love Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And I think that that that's a little bit of a cautionary tale here is that when you're doing work like this so often the type of people who are attracted to doing these sorts of things are so humble that they're not really tooting their own horn. They're not kind of demanding that they're at the table. They're not whatever, but it's not about you at the end of the day. Like it's the fact that you are developing this knowledge. You're covering this corner for everyone else, right? Like you're like, I got this guys. I can, I can be the person watching out for this. Come to see me if you have any questions. And if you're not, um, tooting your own horn, then People don't know that and unfortunately that knowledge base isn't getting as far as it should either. So I think that going forward anyone getting into work like this needs to know that it's such a benefit to the community that people need to be aware of what exactly it is that they're doing. Not that they're working with the restaurant business but that they're going further up the chain and that they are you know addressing this big problem that's a North American problem as well.
1: So good on Deborah and good on Second Harvest for not only doing great work over the last 30 years, but really taking the conscious choice to step up.
0: Yeah, exactly. And And just say, come talk to us.
1: And that was another episode of Foodstuffs.
0: Thanks so much to Stu Sakai from the Ontario Springwater Sake Company for chatting with me about the future of sake. He says for anyone who is curious about getting to know more about sake, namely to taste lots of different types of sake, there is an event coming to Toronto called Kampai Toronto. It's the biggest sake event in the country. It's happening this year on June 3rd. We will be sure to mention it as the date approaches because it's still still a little ways off. Uh, but yeah, if you find yourself in Toronto on Friday, June 3rd, you can head over to the Distillery District and see what you think about sake. I think I'm going to go. Without me?
1: No, you can come with me.
0: <laughs> Better. I'll meet you there.
1: I'd like to give a big thanks to Deborah Lawson, the Executive Director of Second Harvest. Thanks also to Corey McPhee for helping set it up.
0: And big thanks, as always, to Eric Betlam, Sam Petit, and Ken Stauer from CIUT. We adore you guys.
1: Thanks so much. And thanks to you for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Foodstuffs Life or by searching Foodstuffs on
0: Facebook. You can find us on the web at foodstuffs.life. And of course, on iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to subscribe, we would love for you to subscribe. I'm Brian Goman, And I'm Jessica Walker. See you in two
1: weeks. Be the new drink of choice for North American drinkers. Is that how I'm gonna say it?
0: Yes. But. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. Okay.